are going to continue a sermon series today called Stories of Old, and we've been uh, we've been doing this series for about eight weeks now, and we're looking at the lives of of men who are specifically or or kind of secondarily mentioned in Hebrews chapter eleven, and that that chapter of scripture is about faith and it's about what faith looks like and and who has demonstrated faith for us and today we're going to look at the only person uh in this series that we'll do that is not uh mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11 and that man is named Elijah and the reason that we are doing Elijah is because it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that the prophets the prophets demonstrated faith. And uh, Elijah was a prophet. And if any man represents, demonstrates, shows us the truth uh, of what Hebrews chapter 11, 1 says, then it is Elijah. Hebrews chapter 11, 1, which is kind of the, the, the theme verse for this series, is this. Uh, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not See, and Elijah demonstrates that perfectly. The Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now Elijah just, it's crazy because when I read this and I was preparing, I had to go back. It, It doesn't seem like this, but Elijah just really comes out of nowhere in Scripture. I mean, there is nothing about this guy named Elijah until 1 Kings 17, 1 right here. Now Elijah the Tishbite, he shows up on the scene. Now we can guess that Elijah had a pretty big, pretty large ministry going before this. It's just not recorded in Scripture. We know that for primarily two reasons. First of all, it's probably difficult to get a meeting with the king. And Ahab here is the king. And, and so you don't just show up, I wouldn't surmise, at the king's door and you're like, hey, I need to tell you something. You have to have some type of ministry, some type of, of weight in your community in order to make that happen. And the other part of that is, later in the story, we'll see that the king, Ahab, when he meets Elijah again, looks out at Elijah and says, hey, troubler of Israel. And it seems like he already has a disdain for this guy named Elijah. And so Elijah doesn't just pop up out of nowhere, it doesn't seem, uh, as far as his life and his ministry goes. But in Scripture, he comes out of nowhere, and here he goes to Ahab. Ahab is a king of Israel, and he's one of the worst kings that Israel ever had or ever would have ever again. And and his wife is even worse. Her name is Jezebel, and we'll meet her a little later in the story. And, and so here we see that Elijah walks up to this king, this horrible king, this king who, who really hated God, who turned the hearts of the Israelite people away from the true God and, and moved them to a place where they were worshiping false gods. Elijah walks up to him and says, Hey, there is going to be a drought in the land. It's going to be a drought in the land. After this, Elijah is sent by God to a ravine where he goes to a brook. And then this is what God says to him. This is it right here. Listen to this. First uh, Kings 17, 5 and 6. So he did what the Lord had told him. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Now, I read that to you here. 
saying, well, that, that seems like an unimportant detail. Uh, but what we're going to see in the story of Elijah is that Elijah lives this kind of charmed life. And uh, Elijah almost comes across like a superhero with God kind of doing whatever is good for Elijah. And we'll see that throughout the story and we'll come back at the very end to that. But just kind of pay attention to that. And then after this brook dries up, God says to Elijah, here's thing number two that just... It's like, wow, Elijah was different than everybody. God says, hey, I want you to go to another city. And there I I have told a widow to feed you. And so Elijah goes to the city. And and when he gets there, he looks out and he sees this widow. And he says, hey, will you give me a little bit of water? And the widow says, yeah, I'll get you some water. And as she's walking away, uh, Elijah calls out to her, hey, and bring me a little piece of bread as well. And this is what we read. 1 Kings 17, 12. As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. The famine is severe in the land, just as Elijah had predicted. And so there's not a lot of water. And when there's not a lot of water, there's also not a lot of food, right? And so this widow, literally, she's probably not being like just talking or hyperbole or exaggeration or anything like that. She's literally saying like, I'm about to take this flour that I have in my house and I'm going to make the very last meal for me and my son and then we will die. The next line is one of those funny lines of scripture. Because Elijah says, go do that, but first make me a piece of bread. Now, if you stop reading the story there, you think, this Elijah guy is a jerk. I mean, that's like the worst thing. That's something that I would say if I was hungry enough. But like, hey, that's great. I don't care about you or your kid, but hey, just give me a piece of bread first, and then you can die all you want. But he doesn't stop there. Thankfully, he doesn't stop there, or else he wouldn't have been included in this story today. But he says, hey, make me a piece of bread. Piece of bread. It's going to be okay. Because a promise from God, the oil will not run out and the flour will not run out in your house as long as this famine exists in the land. And so the woman goes and she makes him bread and it goes just as Elijah has said. The oil and the flour continue to be there and she's able to feed Elijah day in and day out. She's able to feed herself and she's able to feed her son. And so it's surprising to her. What happens next in in our story, and that is that her son, the son whom seemingly God has chosen to save, becomes very ill. So ill that the Bible describes it as he has no breath. And and it can be taken to mean that that he's dead, or it can be taken to mean that that he has some type of breathing problem and and he's, he's barely hanging on. Either way, the situation is dire, and she thinks that her son is going to die. And so Elijah takes the boy... And he takes the boy upstairs into his living quarters in this widow's house and he begins to pray to God. He begins to pray that God would resuscitate this boy, that God would heal this boy. And it says that three times he stretches out his body over the boy and he calls out to God and says, God, restore life to this young man. And then we read, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah took the boy to his mother and, and then she declares this thing that, that I think she probably should have figured out already. But it tells us just about everything we need to know about Elijah as a prophet. This is what it says. Uh, now I know that you are a man of God and that your word of the Lord from your mouth 
is truth. Sometime later, after this moment, Elijah is sent by God to go back to King Ahab. And and at the same time, uh, there's a a situation going on. The land is suffering a terrible drought. And so Ahab gets his advisor, whose name is Obadiah, who you're going to like. He's a God-fearing man. And he says, hey, if if we continue on the way we're going to continue on, then we're going to have to kill some of our cattle. But let's, me and you, let's go search out the land. And let's look for some grass so that we can feed some of our animals and hopefully prevent having to slaughter many of them in order that that we can continue to live and and not have to see them suffer and basically starve to death. And so Ahab and Obadiah set out and Obadiah goes in a different direction than the king. And and then there's this parenthetical statement in Scripture and it's very important. 1 Kings 18, 3 and 4. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel, there she is again, was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So here's Jezebel again. This is the wife of King Ahab. She is a bad woman. And one of the points that I would like you to get from this sermon is first, don't marry a woman named Jezebel. Don't name, don't name your daughter Jezebel. And even more importantly, don't marry a woman who hates God's people. And don't marry a woman who kills. Uh, hopefully you already got that. But I wrote all of those down here because I think that it is important. And, uh, and so maybe a Jezebel could be nice. I don't know. But don't name your daughter at the very least. And don't marry somebody who hates God's people. And definitely don't marry a killer. Uh, it's not going to go well for you. And in the story of Ahab, it doesn't go well for him because she pulls him away from the Lord. And she really takes, you know, Ahab's kind of disengaged evil heart and really makes it so that it's just vile. I mean, she just takes the nation and, and makes it a, a really a bad place at the time of, of our story today. Uh, but more to the point, Obadiah is a godly man. Uh, he even risked his own life in order to save these 100 prophets. And so he's walking now and he's looking for grass and Ahab's gone a different direction. And Elijah shows up and says, hey, I want you to go tell your master, that's Ahab, that I've come to see him. Now, Obadiah knows about Elijah. He's a God-fearing person. Elijah's kind of like the godly man, the mouthpiece of God on earth at the time. And, and so Obadiah falls down in front of him, and he, he shows respect to Elijah. But he says to Elijah, have you come to get me killed? He says, don't you know that Ahab hates your guts, and that Ahab has sent people everywhere looking for you. And whenever a city or a nation said, we don't know where Elijah is, he made them promise that you weren't there. And I think that the intent, it's not actually said in Scripture, but it's like this. If you're lying to me, I'm going to destroy you. That's kind of Ahab's attitude. And so he looks at Elijah and he's like, hey, here's the deal, man. You're a spirit-led man. And if I leave and I go to Ahab and say, hey, I found Elijah. And then the Spirit of God takes you somewhere else. And we come back and you're not here. I'm dead. And then he reminds Elijah. He says, hey, didn't you not hear about how great of a guy I am? How I saved a hundred of God's people. You've been there, right? Like, hey, you know me. Come on. You know I'm a good guy. Come on. How are you going to do it like that? Right? I mean, come on. And Elijah says, don't worry about it. 
I will be here when you come back. And so Ahab comes, and he's still there, and this is when he drops the troubler of Israel line. And, and then we get to really the main thrust of the story. And, and it's a story that, that I have loved for a long time, and, and I consider trying to just tell it and continue kind of how I've been doing it. But I'm going to read a lot of verses here. It's, it's like 21 verses, because this story is one that I grew up knowing well. But I think a lot of people are, are a little bit unfamiliar with this story. And I think it's so good and so important that, that it's worth reading all of it. And so just listen to this. I mean, Ahab says, hey, you troubler of Israel. And then this is where it picks up. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed Baal's. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah was before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put wood on and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of my Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the Lord your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening, the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill your large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried. 
The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's a wager. He says, look, this is what we're going to do. We'll figure out who God is. And here's the, here's the most interesting part. The background information of this is important for us. And that is that the people thought that Baal was, was the one who, who, who made the crops grow and the water come. He was really the god of agriculture in some ways. And, and so they're thinking, literally, they thought at the time that their god had kind of abandoned them, that he was locked up or something, and that is why the drought had come. They thought he had disappeared, and then Elijah shows up, and when he taunts them, those are very real taunts. I mean, we look at it as slightly sarcastic, but in some ways, it's sarcasm with some truth to it, because they think that their God has gone away for a while. And Elijah shows, shows them that the true God does not go away. Elijah said that he had done all these things at God's command. You need to pay attention to that. Because look, as a kid, when I thought about this story, I thought, well, why can't I prove God? I mean, why, why can't I just like, I'll go get some wood, and if I have enough faith, then we can just light a fire and everything, will just fix it. Everybody will know that Jesus is real and all of that. But, but notice, it's important, that, that Elijah said that he had done all of these things at the command of God. And we'll look at this in a second, but, but look, if you just want to prove God and you go out there on a street, then nothing's probably going to light on fire. But if God says, hey, this is the plan, then you better do it. Next in our story, uh, Elijah tells Ahab to go eat and drink because the rain is going to come. And then Elijah sends his servant seven times to go look for clouds. And he prays in between those times. And on the seventh time, his servant comes back and says, there's some rain coming. There's a little bit of rain coming, it looks like. There's a, a cloud as big as a man's hand. Then, Ahab has to tell Jezebel everything that has taken place. Now, maybe it's just me. I don't like to tell Bryn when I forgot to do the dishes. Some of you understand that. I would really, really hate... To come home, Bryn come home, she says, how was the day? What did you do today? And I say, well, it wasn't so good. I got all of the pastors killed in all of Wilsonville. And that's the conversation that Ahab has to have with his wife. Because notice that, that his wife was supporting these people. It says that they ate at her table. So Jezebel isn't like some disinterested religious person who kind of worships this false god named Baal, which, by the way, uh, it can mean many different gods. It's usually localized. It's a word for a false god, basically. Uh, it's not like she's some disinterested person. She is literally the support for it. She's financially supporting these men in their ministry. And he says, you know, we had this wager, and I thought it would work. And then, and then all the prophets died. You know, and that, that's what happens here. And Jezebel is angry. And she sends a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And so Elijah flees for his life. He leaves his servant behind. He travels another day. And then in 1 Kings 19.5, we see... Elijah in a place where he's depressed and he's already said to God, I would like to die. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just like my ancestors. Just let it be over for me. And then we read this. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. 
He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again. Are you, you go to bed depressed, and an angel wakes you up with warm bread by your head. That's a pretty good deal, right? You get, like, that's pretty charmed. I mean, that's, that's what I want to happen to me, Bryn. Um... I want to go to bed, and I want to wake up with hot bread by my head. Every day I want it, but I'll take it just when I go to bed sad and hungry, right? But the angel's not even done. Because in 1 Kings 19, 7 through 9, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. She got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Then we come to the second most famous part of Elijah's story. He's sitting in this cave, and and then God says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to pass by you. And and says to Elijah, why are you here? And, And this is what Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And then God passes by Elijah. But before he passes by Elijah, it's a a cool part of the story. We see that a giant wind comes by. The Bible says that God was not in the wind. And then we see that an earthquake happens, and the rocks are shaking. and tells us that God was not in the earthquake. And then we see that a fire starts. It says, God was not in the fire. And then there's a still, small voice. And it says to Elijah again, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeats what he has said before. And almost as if God doesn't hear it, he starts to give instructions to Elijah. It's just really interesting. And I don't have a point for you, but God just moves on to the next thing. It's like, hey, I'm not worried about how you feel about this right now, but here's what I need you to accomplish He says, I need you to appoint a leader, and I need you to appoint a prophet, and I need you to appoint another guy, and they'll kill some people. And then, 1 Kings 19.18, Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. And then this part of Elijah's story concludes... Now here's the question I have. We've gone through this sermon series in eight weeks, and for about eight weeks now, one of the points of almost every sermon, and we talked about it when we plan our music sets because we try to talk through topic and theme, has been this. These people, these great men, were flawed, sinful people. And yet they believed what God had said, and so God used them in mighty ways. And that's been kind of the theme. That's, that's really the kind of the, the main thing that I've said for about eight weeks now uh, with some side points thrown in there. But then we come to Elijah. And nowhere in Scripture do we see recorded sins of Elijah. There are some moments of doubt. There are some moments of where he's upset. But we don't see about uh, anything about Elijah stealing or lying or committing murder or committing adultery or idolatry or doing anything that we would consider horribly wrong. And on top of that, he's almost like a superhero, right? I mean, we see like Elijah 
gets upset and then God just gives him something. Elijah prays for something and it automatically happens. Elijah, it even tells us that, that he runs and he's able to beat Ahab and his chariots at one part of the story I didn't, I didn't say. And, and so we look at this character named Elijah and he's more than any of the other guys that we'll do in this series. He, he's like mythical almost. I mean, he comes out of nowhere, which is a great superhero trait, right? Like, and now Elijah the Tishbite is like, was he born? Or I mean, did the, he just all of it, he's just talking to the king? I mean, that's the first thing you can tell me is he's talking to the king and he's he's conveying God's message to the world. That's kind of superheroish. And so the question that's a little more difficult when you read this story is how do we connect? Let me take it even a step further. In the New Testament, Matthew 17:3, here's what we read. Just then there appeared before them, before Elijah, I mean before Jesus and, and three of the disciples, appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Even in the New Testament, Elijah comes back to have a conversation with Jesus. Pretty cool. Mark 8:27 and 28. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way back, he asked them, this is Jesus, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. I mean, like, people think that Jesus, for all his perfection and amazingness, they think he's Elijah reincarnate. It's a big deal. And then Mark 15.35, Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and we read, when some of those standing heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Elijah is so like awesome in scripture that, that some of the people who are standing around the cross literally think that Jesus is not calling Yahweh, the God of the universe, but calling for Elijah's help from heaven. And so it's difficult to know what we can learn. And, and here's... First of all, I, I think we see this same common theme. His obedience in Scripture is second to none. I think it's incredible. And, and so the first thing we learn from Elijah, besides all kind of like these great things, is simply that Elijah is obedient. And maybe part of the reason he comes across like a superhero is because he has learned to be obedient to God in everything. I mean, just consider it. If God said, hey, I want you to leave your house, go to the river, live in a van down there, and I'm going to have some ravens feed you. I mean, think about that. I mean, we look back and we're like, of course, Elijah, God told him to. But what if God told you? You'd be like, well, I have this nice house and I already have food and I got things to take care of here and this is comfortable. And But Elijah gets up and leaves. And he just goes to this brook. It wasn't a river. And he trusts God to feed him. And throughout the whole story, we see that when God asks Elijah to do something, Elijah does it. And the side point to that is that when God says he will do something, Elijah believes him. And so that same thing that's gone through all of our stories, every one of these Old Testament men has the same thing in common. When God speaks, even if they're wretched, sinful people like Samson, who we studied a few weeks ago, they Listen, and they believe him, even if they can't see what God is saying to be true, even if there's no evidence of it, they say, sure, God, I believe you. But 
There's another really important aspect of Elijah's life, and it comes to us from the New Testament, James 5:13 through 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Let me pause there. The word for saved right there is a spiritual word. And actually the word for sickness doesn't reference physical sickness. It's a, it's a very poor translation that's been passed down to us. But both of these things are talking about spiritual aspects and not physical aspects. The elders of this church have no special ability to heal you apart from the power of God. Just know that. And so these words, and if you don't believe me, we can have a conversation about it. Uh, these words are spiritual words. And so it's saying... When somebody's struggling spiritually, pray for them. Ready? If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Spiritual. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then the crazy line of it all. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone shall bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Did you catch the very important line that I said loudly? Elijah was just a man like we are. Elijah was a person like us. The we are right there actually means of the same kind, of the same spirit, of the same type. That's what the word means. And so we look, and the Bible is making this explicit statement. Elijah is no different than you and I. His story is recorded in Scripture is pretty superhero-ish. It seems way out there, like nothing we could ever obtain. But James gives us the trick to it all. It says, Elijah was no different in his makeup. There was nothing that made him better than you. There was nothing that made him cooler than you. There was nothing that, that, that separated him from the type of person that you are, except maybe one thing. If you noticed it there, he prayed earnestly. The literal translation is, he prayed with prayer. This isn't just talking about, like, hey God, make it rain. I got things to do, but there I prayed. This is talking about a prayer that's impassioned, that is deep and rich and real, and it recognizes that the only way that these things are going to happen is through the power of God. It's prayer that, that can go on for days. It's prayer that, that has tears and passion behind it. It's prayer that feels real. It feels less like going through a checklist and more like when you are excited about something, like you would picture a sporting event. It's prayer that, that really demonstrates that we care and that we need and that we are relying on God. You see, when you just read the story of Elijah, you think, I can never be like that. But when you read the words of James, you see that you can if you learn to pray earnestly. 
And here's what I, I, I just, it's so important. We've been going through this series and we're, we're talking about how you can live a greater life, how you can accomplish more for Jesus and his kingdom, how you can give back in greater ways and, and do things that matter on this world that really make a difference for humanity, not just now, but for eternity. We've seen lots of great points, but I don't think we can actually do any of them. And I'm not sure any of them matter if we don't learn to pray earnestly. If we don't learn to pray with prayer. If we don't learn to pray passionately. You see, you look at Elijah and sure he's fed by ravens and widows help him out and oil and flour don't run out and angels wake him up in the middle of the night and we think, wow, that's all crazy and that's not like me at all. But what scripture seems to be saying is that really the only difference between you and Elijah is earnest prayer. And so my encouragement, and the thing that is just so important for us as Christians, if you are one, and and for us as a church, is that we learn to pray impassioned prayers. It is easy, and and this is something that is just, God is really doing in, in me right now. And I said this a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week. I'm pretty good at checklist prayers. I'm pretty good about going down the list and making sure I pray for you guys and getting the words out. But I'm not very good at just going to God with desperation and saying, God, look, this isn't happening in any other way. Where are you? I'm not very good at waiting on the Lord. I mean, David and the other psalmists, they're like, God, until you act, I will not move. Until you respond to me, I'm not getting up off my knees. And I compare that to my prayers. And it is no wonder that David accomplished far more than me. You see, we can go through and pray. I mean, it's not... We, we've messed it up. We've really messed it up because we've made... And we do this with Bible reading too. And if you've been around me long enough, you already know I don't like this. But we've made it just like, I need to pray more. I don't know if you need to pray more. I think you need to pray more passionately. And that probably will go longer. I don't know. But I think you could pray a one-sentence prayer that's more passionate than some of my 30-minute prayers that matter more to God, that God is more excited to respond to, that are more valuable to the world and to God's kingdom. You see, the story of the Bible that we talked about Last week, I mean, that God created and then people sinned and so therefore they were separated for God, from God. But God loved people so much that, that he came in the form of Jesus and he lived a sinless life and then died for those sins so that we could have a relationship with him. It's incredible and in that it brings us joy and excitement and, and moves us, hopefully, to care more about God. But there's another part of the story. And that is that when Jesus went to heaven, the Holy Spirit came back and it says that the Holy Spirit is working in our world. And what we've seen and what we see clearly is that while God is sovereign and God can do whatever He wants, He most often responds when people pray passionately. I mean, the day that the Holy Spirit came for the first time, a day called Pentecost, about 50 days after Jesus left the earth, the people that followed Jesus while he was alive were passionately praying. 
We can see other stories in Scripture. When there's an earthquake and Peter is released from prison, it's a great story that you can read in the book of Acts. Where was the church? They were on their knees praying together that Peter would be released. You can see it just throughout all of Scripture. People passionately praying and God responding. And so my encouragement this morning, and if you want to live a bigger life, if you really want to give back to Jesus, if you want to make a difference on the planet, is to not say, I should pray more. But to say, I should pray in a way that if somebody was watching me, they would think that I really needed God's help. Because I know sometimes if somebody were to watch my prayer, they'd say, well, Chad... Chad feels a need to pray, but he doesn't feel a need for God to move. And I think that is the biggest difference between us and Elijah. Are you praying? When you get on your knees, if you do, and hopefully you do, when you get on your knees, are you praying because you think you need to pray? Are you praying because you want to see God move? And when it's about God moving and entreating Him and begging Him at times to do something, it looks a lot different than God help them, God be with them. God fix this. God bless this. Try to have a prayer where you you don't ask God to be with something or bless something. Try to pray something that's real and sincere, right? Because what does that even mean? God be with whoever. I'm already there, Chad. I can just hear God's answer like, are you going to pray anything that matters today? He doesn't say that to me. Uh, That'd be wicked awesome if I heard him, but I'd be pretty scared if that's what he said. But, uh, But really, I mean, like... I've said this before, but like God's like, yeah, I'm, I'm with them. They're Christians. I actually live inside of them. So what do you really want me to do for them? I think even in our language, we see that we're not, our prayers are not sincere sometimes. I hate to say it that way. They're not fervent. But if we are going to live big lives, lives that conquer giants, Lives that leave a heritage for years and years to come. Lives that change people's hearts, turning hearts away from false gods and towards the true and living God, Yahweh. Then it's going to come as we earnestly pray. As we pray with prayer. As we are sincere and passionate and and entreating our God to do something incredible. And so this week, I want you to pray. I don't just want you to pray more. But I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to pray sincerely and passionately. I was just having a conversation. This just I meant to put this in my notes, but I forgot to. And and I was talking to somebody in our church over coffee this week and, and we were talking about how it seems to make a difference in how we pray given the posture that we're actually in. And for me, uh I, I don't pray laying down because I sleep laying down. So even if I tear Jesus like that, that's about what that looks like. And I actually don't pray very well sitting down either. I'm much better moving and walking. Uh, But I don't always do it because I'm being lazy or whatever. And for a lot of people, there's a difference when they're actually on their knees. And and so... uh, I want you to pray passionately, and maybe that's, that's a little bit too vague, a little bit too general. But I'm asking this. This is your homework assignment for this week. I really would encourage you to this. I want you to pray in a position that allows for you to be more sincere in your prayers. 
I don't know what that is for you. It's very different for me. I, I prayer walk, and, and that's very good for me. A lot of people say, when I prayer walk, I just look at stuff, and, and I don't actually pray. And that's how I am when I'm sitting in my house, to be honest. It's like, well, I gotta, I'll gotta, i just clean a little while I'm, doing, while I'm trying to pray, and it doesn't work for me. But for you, if it's down on your knees, and, and you teach that to kids, right? Like, let's say your prayers before you go to bed, but sometime around your 20s, you just stop doing that or whatever. And maybe you're not able to get down on your knees. Maybe for you, it's just sitting up. I don't know. Maybe it's standing with your arms in the air. But I encourage you this week to say a prayer, at least one, where you are in a posture that says, God, I am desperate for you, and a posture that allows for you to be more sincere in your prayers. Will you pray with me? Lord, I... Uh, we need you, Lord, and we're going through this series, and I hope people are getting just at least a little bit inspired to do something awesome for you, Lord, to not live these regular lives that look just like the rest of the world, uh, but but really to, to use their spiritual gifts, the gifts that you've given them to to do something that that is world-changing for eternity, God. And... Uh, Lord, hopefully people are taking steps to believe you when you speak to them, either, either through your spirit or, or God, um, through your word. And hopefully people, God, are, are willing to be courageous because they're passionate about you and, and your story of salvation that we, that we talked about last week. And hopefully people, God, are not being discouraged by the sins in their lives and they are remembering your loving kindness, your hesed, God, and, and how it's greater than anything that we've done in the past like we talked about in the story of Rahab, Lord. But God, we need you. And you respond to prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take us, and you know that this is something I want and something I'm really desperate for, but you would turn us into a people, a church, that is just prayerful. And and not just like we pray more, like I said, but we pray passionately, recognizing, Lord, that none of the things that we desire to accomplish or hope to accomplish are ever going to turn out if you are not behind it, Lord. We can never see revival in this community, in this state, in this country, if we are not passionately seeking you. And and we can look back, Lord, historically and even see it. The first great awakening, the second great awakening, every, every time of revival in our country has started with people passionately praying. Not just going through a checklist, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would take our hearts and you would take us to a place where we are prayers. Not just people who pray, but we are prayers, God, who desperately seek you. Lord, we need you. And right now we ask that you would come and you would meet with us. And you and your spirit, Lord, would, would just just move in people's hearts. And, and, and it, would, it would convict us or encourage us or whatever needs to happen to just be down on our knees more, Lord. To be walking around more with you, God. Seeking you and your help, your assistance, your graciousness, your kindness your power, Lord, in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you want to have that type of interaction with us. And we pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.